Section 21 of To the Last Man by Zane Gray. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 11, Part 1. When Ellen, utterly spent in body and mind, reached home that day, a melancholy, sultry twilight was falling. Fitful flares of sheet lightning swept across the dark horizon to the east. The cabins were deserted. Antonio and the Mexican woman were gone. The circumstances made Ellen wonder, but she was too tired and too sunken in spirit to think long about it, or to care. She fed and watered her horse, and left him in the corral. Then supperless, and without removing her clothes, she threw herself upon the bed, and at once sank into heavy slumber. Sometime during the night she awoke. Coyotes were yelping, and from that sound she concluded it was near dawn. Her body ached, her mind seemed dull. Drowsily, she was sinking into slumber again when she heard the rapid clip-clop of trotting horses. Startled, she raised her head to listen. The men were coming back. Relief and dread seemed to clear her stupor. The trotting horses stopped across the lane from her cabin, evidently at the corral where she had left spades. She heard him whistle. From the sound of hoofs, she judged the number of horses to be six or eight. Low voices of men mingled with thuds and cracking of straps and flopping of saddles on the ground. After that, the heavy tread of boots sounded on the porch of the cabin opposite. A door creaked on its hinges. Next, a slow footstep, accompanied by clinking spurs, approached Ellen's door and a heavy hand banged upon it. She knew this person could not be her father. Hello, Ellen? She recognized the voice as belonging to Coulter. Somehow its tone, or something about it, sent a little shiver down her spine. It acted like a revivifying current. Ellen lost her dragging lethargy. Hey, Ellen, are you there? added Coulter, louder voice. "'Yes, of course I'm here,' she replied. "'What do you want?' "'Well, I'm sure glad you're home,' he replied. "'Antonio's gone with his squaw, and I was some worried about you.' "'Who's with you, Coulter?' queried Ellen, sitting up. "'Rock Wells and Springer. Tad Jorth was with us, but we had to leave him over here in a cabin.' "'What's the matter with him?' "'Well, he's hurt tolerable bad,' was the slow reply." Ellen heard Coulter's spurs jangle, as if he had uneasily shifted his feet. "'Where's Dad and Uncle Jackson?' asked Ellen. A silence, pregnant enough to augment Ellen's dread, finally broke to Coulter's voice, somehow different. "'Sure they're back on the trail, and we're to meet them where we left Tad.' "'Are you going away again?' "'I reckon. And Ellen, you're going with us.' "'I am not,' she retorted. "'Well, you are, if I have to pack you,' he replied forcibly. "'It's not safe here any more. "'That damned half-breed Isbel with his gang are on our trail.' The name seemed like a red-hot blade at Ellen's leaden heart. She wanted to fling a hundred queries on Coulter, but she could not utter one. "'Ellen, we've got to hit the trail and hide,' continued Coulter anxiously. "'You mustn't stay here alone. "'Suppose them Isbels would trap you.' They'd tear off your clothes and rope you to a tree. Ellen, sure you're going. You hear me? 
Yes, I'll go, she replied, as if forced. Well, that's good, he said quickly, and rustled tolerable lively. We've got to pack. The slow jangle of Coulter's spurs and his slow steps moved away out of Ellen's hearing. Throwing off the blankets, she put her feet to the floor and sat there a moment, staring at the blank nothingness of the cabin interior in the obscure gray of dawn. Cold, gray, dreary, obscure, like her life, her future. And she was compelled to do what was hateful to her. As a jorth, she must take to the unfrequented trails and hide like a rabbit in the thickets. But the interest of the moment, a premonition of events to be, quickened her into action. Ellen unbarred the door and let in the light. Day was breaking, with an intense, clear, steely light in the east, through which the morning stars still shone white. A ruddy flare betokened the advent of the sun. Ellen unbraided her tangled hair and brushed and combed it. A queer, still pang came to her at sight of pine needles tangled in her brown locks. Then she washed her hands and face. Breakfast was a matter of considerable work, and she was hungry. The sun rose and changed the gray world of forest. For the first time in her life, Ellen hated the golden brightness, the wonderful blue of sky, the scream of the eagles, and the screech of the jay, and the squirrels she had always loved to feed were neglected that morning. Coulter came in. Ellen had never before looked attentively at him, or else he had changed. Her scrutiny of his lean, hard features accorded him more Texan attributes than formerly. His gray eyes were as light, as clear, as fierce as those of an eagle, and the sand gray of his face, the long, drooping, fair mustache, hid the secrets of his mind, but not its strength. The instant Ellen met his gaze, she sensed the power in him that she instinctively opposed. Coulter had not been so bold nor so rude as Dags, but he was the same kind of man, perhaps the more dangerous for his secretiveness, his cool, waiting, inscrutableness. "'Morning, Ellen,' he drawled. "'You sure look good for sore eyes.' "'Don't pay me compliments, Coulter,' replied Ellen. "'And your eyes are not sore.' Well, I'm sore, sure, from fighting and riding and laying out, he said bluntly. Tell me what happened, returned Ellen. Girl, it's a tolerable long story, replied Coulter, and we've no time now. Wait till we get to camp. Am I to pack my belongings or leave them here? asked Ellen. Reckon you'd better leave them here. But if we did not come back... Well, I reckon... It's not likely we'll come soon, he said, rather evasively. Coulter, I'll not go off into the woods with just the clothes I have on my back. Ellen, we've sure got to pack all the grab we can. This sure ain't going to be a visit to neighbors. We're shy of pack horses. But you make up a bundle of belongings you care for and the things you'll need bad. We'll throw it on somewhere. Coulter stalked away across the lane and Ellen found herself dubiously staring at his tall figure. Was it the situation that struck her with a foreboding perplexity, or was it her intuition stealing her against this man? 
Ellen could not decide, but she had to go with him. Her prejudice was unreasonable at this portentous moment, and she could not yet feel that she was solely responsible to herself. When it came to making a small bundle of her belongings, she was in a quandary. She discarded this and put in that, and then reversed the order. Next in preciousness to her mother's things were the long-hidden gifts of Jean Isbel. She could part with neither. While she was selecting and packing this bundle, Coulter again entered and, without speaking, began to rummage in the corner where her father kept his possessions. This irritated Ellen. "'What do you want there?' she demanded. "'Well, I reckon your dad wants his papers and the gold he left here and a change of clothes. Now, doesn't he?' returned Coulter coolly. "'Of course, but I suppose you would have me pack them.' Coulter vouchsafed no reply to this, but deliberately went on rummaging with little regard for how he scattered things. Ellen turned her back on him. At length, when he left, she went to her father's corner and found that, as far as she was able to see, Coulter had taken neither papers nor clothes, but only the gold. Perhaps, however, she had been mistaken, for she had not observed Coulter's departure closely enough to know whether or not he carried a package. She missed only the gold. Her father's papers, old and musty, were scattered about, and these she gathered up to slip in her own bundle. Coulter, or one of the men, had saddled spades, and now he was tied to the corral fence, champing his bit and pounding the sand. Ellen wrapped bread and meat inside her coat, and after tying this behind her saddle, she was ready to go. But evidently she would have to wait, and preferring to remain outdoors, she stayed by her horse. Presently, while watching the men pack, she noticed that Springer wore a bandage round his head under the brim of his sombrero. His motions were slow and lacked energy. Suttering at the sight, Ellen refused conjecture. All too soon she would learn what happened, and all too soon, perhaps, she herself would be in the midst of another fight. She watched the men. They were making a hurried, slipshod job of packing food supplies from both cabins. More than once she caught Coulter's gray gleam of gaze on her, and she did not like it. "'I'll ride up and say good-bye to Sprague,' she called to Coulter. "'Sure you won't do nothing of that kind,' he called back. There was authority in his tone that angered Ellen, and something else which inhibited her anger. What was there about Coulter with which she must reckon?' The other two Texans laughed aloud, to be suddenly silenced by Coulter's harsh and lowered curses. Ellen walked out of hearing and sat upon a log, where she remained, until Coulter hailed her. "'Get up and ride,' he called. Ellen complied with this order, and riding up behind the three mounted men, she soon found herself leaving what for years had been her home. Not once did she look back. She hoped she would never see the squalid, bare pretension of a ranch again. Colter and the other riders drove the pack horses across the meadow, off of the trails, and up the slope into the forest. Not very long did it take Ellen to see that Colter's object was to hide his tracks. 
He zigzagged through the forest, avoiding the bare spots of dust, the dry sun-baked flats of clay where water lay in spring, and he chose the grassy open glades, the long pine-needle matted aisles. Ellen rode at their heels, and it pleased her to watch for their tracks. Coulter manifestly had been long practice in this game of hiding his trail, and he showed the skill of a rustler. But Ellen was not convinced that he could ever elude a real woodsman. Not improbably, however, Coulter was only aiming to leave a trail difficult to follow, and which would allow him and his confederates ample time to forge ahead of pursuers. Ellen could not accept a certainty of pursuit. Yet Coulter must have expected it, and Springer and Wells also, for they had a dark, sinister, furtive demeanor that strangely contrasted with the cool, easy manner habitual to them. They were not seeking the level routes of the forest land, that was sure. They rode straight across the thick timbered ridges down into another canyon, up out of that, and across rough, rocky bluffs, and down again. These riders headed a little to the northwest, and every mile brought them into wilder, more rugged country, until Ellen, losing count of canyons and ridges, had no idea where she was. No stop was made at noon to rest the laboring, sweating pack animals. Under circumstances where pleasure might have been possible, Ellen would have reveled in this hard ride into a wonderful forest, ever thickening and darkening. But the wild beauty of glade and the spruce slopes and the deep bronze-walled canyons left her cold. She saw and felt, but had no thrill, except now and then a thrill of alarm, when Spades slid to his haunches down some steep, damp, piney declivity. All the woodland up and down appeared to be richer, greener, as they traveled farther west. Grass grew thick and heavy. Water ran in all ravines. The rocks were bronze and copper and russet, and some had green patches of lichen. Ellen felt the sun now on her left cheek, and knew that the day was waning, and that Coulter was swinging farther to the northwest. She had never before ridden through such heavy forest and down and up such wild canyons. Toward sunset, the deepest and ruggedest canyon halted their advance. Coulter rode to the right, searching for a place to get down through a spruce thicket that stood on end. Presently he dismounted, and the others followed suit. Ellen found that she could not lead Spades because he slid down upon her heels, so she looped the end of her reins over the pommel and left him free. She herself managed to descend by holding the branches and sliding all the way down that slope. She heard the horses cracking the brush, snorting and heaving. One pack slipped and had to be removed from the horse and rolled down. At the bottom of this deep, green-walled notch roared a stream of water, shadowed, cool, mossy, damp. This narrow gulch seemed the wildest place Ellen had ever seen. She could just see the sunset-flushed, gold-tipped spruces far above her. The men repacked the horse that had slipped his burden, and once more resumed their progress ahead, 
now turning up this canyon. There was no horse trail, but deer and bear trails were numerous. The sun sank and the sky darkened, but still the men rode on, and the farther they traveled, the wilder grew the aspect of the canyon. At length, Coulter broke away through a heavy thicket of willows and entered a side canyon, the mouth of which Ellen had not even descried. It turned and widened, and at length opened out into a round pocket, apparently enclosed, and as lonely and isolated a place as even pursued rustlers could desire. Hidden by jutting wall and thicket of spruce were two old log cabins, joined together by roof and attic floor, the same as the double cabin at the Jorth Ranch. Ellen smelled wood smoke, and presently, on going round the cabins, she saw a bright fire. One man stood beside it, gazing at Coulter's party, which evidently he had heard approaching. "'Hello, Queen,' said Coulter. "'How's Tad?' "'He's holding on fine,' replied Queen, bending over the fire, where he turned pieces of meat. "'Where's Father?' suddenly asked Ellen, addressing Coulter. As if he had not heard her, he went on wearily, loosening a pack. Queen looked at her. The light of the fire only partially shone on his face. Ellen could not see his expression. But from the fact that Queen did not answer her question, she got further intimation of impending catastrophe. The long, wild ride had helped prepare her for the secrecy and taciturnity of men who had resorted to flight. Perhaps her father had been delayed, or was still off on the deadly mission that had obsessed him. Or there might, and probably was, darker reasons for his absence. Ellen shut her teeth and turned to the needs of her horse, and presently, returning to the fire, she thought of her uncle. "'Queen, is my Uncle Tad here?' she asked. "'Sure, he's in there,' replied Queen, pointing at the nearer cabin. Ellen hurried toward the dark doorway. She could see how the logs of the cabin had moved awry, and what a big dilapidated hovel it was. As she looked in, Coulter loomed over her, placed a familiar and somehow masterful hand upon her. Ellen let it rest on her shoulder a moment. Must she forever be repulsing these rude men among whom her lot was cast? Did Coulter mean what Daggs had always meant? Ellen felt herself weary, weak in body, and her spent spirit had not rallied. Yet whatever Coulter meant by his familiarity, she could not bear it. So she slipped out from under his hand. "'Uncle Tad, are you here?' she called into the blackness. She heard the mice scamper and rustle, and she smelled the musty, old, woody odor of a long, unused cabin. "'Hello, Ellen,' came a voice she recognized as her uncle's. Yet it was strange. Yes, I'm here. Bad luck to me. How you buckin' up, girl? I'm all right, Uncle Tad. Only tired and worried. I... Tad, how's your hurt? interrupted Coulter. Reckon I'm easier, replied Jorth wearily. But sure, I'm in bad shape. I'm still spitting blood. I keep telling Queen that bullet lodged in my lungs. But he says it went through. Well, hang on, Tad, replied Coulter, with a cheerfulness Ellen sensed was really indifferent. Oh, what the hell's the use, exclaimed Jorth. 
It's all up with us, Coulter. Well, shut up then, tersely returned Coulter. It ain't doing you or us any good to holler. Tad Jorth did not reply to this. Ellen heard his breathing, and it did not seem natural. It rasped a little, came hurriedly, then caught in his throat. Then he spat. Ellen shrunk back against the door. He was breathing through blood. Uncle, are you in pain? she asked. Yes, Ellen, it burns like hell, he said. Oh, I'm sorry. Isn't there something I can do? I reckon not. Queen did all anybody could do for me, now, unless it's prey. Coulter laughed at this, the slow, easy, drawling laugh of a Texan. But Ellen felt pity for this wounded uncle. She had always hated him. He had been a drunkard, a gambler, a waster of her father's property. And now he was a rustler and a fugitive, lying in pain, perhaps mortally hurt. Yes, uncle, I will pray for you, she said softly. End of chapter 11, part 1